The news has been pretty interesting the last little while. It looks like we're on the verge of what could be World War III, but that's not really a fringe topic, so we're not going to be talking about that one. Okay. Are we moving on to the Queen? No, we just talked about her. She has to wait. <laughs> she can't have the spotlight every week. That's it's just true. what she wants. <laughs> there is an update on the Julian Assange case, but this topic I found, I think, is just topical enough that we have to cover it, and I've just never really seen this happen before. It is a legalese thing, so I find it interesting, but you probably won't see it covered very many places. Okay. Right now, we're living through a very interesting time with regards to workers' rights. We're seeing the rise on Reddit of the subreddit anti-work, which is people basically en masse agreeing that the way workers are treated sucks, so they have been quitting. Yeah. We're also seeing strong unionization numbers, the highest they've been in decades. We're also seeing just the absolute disregard for employees as humans from a lot of employers, too. Yes. Yeah. This is exciting news, though, for them yeah. realizing it. Yeah, although I'm about to cover some interesting court cases that aren't exactly pro-labor. This first one is with regards to a railroad workers union plans to strike. So the BNSF railway company, one of the largest freight rail carriers in the U.S., is requesting a federal court stop a potential strike on the grounds that it would harm the economy after two unions representing thousands of the company's workers threatened a work stoppage over a new attendance policy set to begin at the onset of February. The rail strike, even if brief or localized, can cause devastating and irreparable harm to carriers, their customers, other railroads, and the general public. The threatened strike in the case would strain an already overburdened supply chain, potentially causing wide-ranging harm to the national economy. BNSF said in its lawsuit, according to the Associated Press. Last week, a joint statement was released by the president of the Transportation Division of International Association of Sheet Metal, Air, Rail, and Transportation, Smart TD Union, and the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen, BLET, detailing the first steps the unions were taking to initiate a strike in response to new policies. The new policies are called high-vis attendance policies, and it's a point-based system designed to penalize employees for taking days off. Employees have 30 points for the time that they spend with the company and have certain amounts of points taken away for taking days off on weekdays, weekends, or holidays. The employee said once a worker goes below 30 points, an offense is triggered that can result in an employee being suspended or terminated. This is unprecedented in BNSF's policy repudiates direct and clear contract language and in application will attempt to force our members to report for duty without regards for their medical condition as we struggle to come out of a pandemic, the union says. And this union represents about 17,000 workers and said it has begun pulling its workers to determine if they should strike. So basically, as soon as you as soon as you start working for this place, you have your regular hours that you have to show up for. And if you miss any days, you lose a point. You start with 30 points. If you fall to zero, you're going to be either brought up on offenses or terminated, which is terrible if you're trying to prevent the spread of a pandemic. Yes, among other things. Yes. Just to give you an idea of what this change is. BNSF went to federal courts this week arguing a change to their attendance policy hasn't been made in at least 20 years and the change is not significant enough for workers to be able to go on strike under federal law. The rail company has also said the strike would cause too significant of damage to the economy and should not be allowed to 
to happen. The employees had spoken to KCEN and told the TV station that the attendance policy change would mean instead of being available 24-7 for about 75% of the year, workers would have to be available for about 90 to 95% of the time if they don't want to risk potential discipline. He said the new policy would equate to workers getting two to three days off per month. What? Is that legal? It really depends on who you ask because it is a union represented employment. I only know employment law in very specific jurisdictions. I don't know it in the US at all. And I know it is completely different there. But that is a ridiculous work shift. And especially if you have to quarantine for 10 days, you're basically never getting another day off again. Yeah, and you're probably going to get fired because you're probably negative. How does this company employ so many people? It's a railway. So there's just a ton of people involved in the railway. But why do people want to work there? Basically, it used to be good union jobs. And like all good union jobs, they've kind of been degraded away into just getting little chips every now and then taken off to what they are now. There's actually been a lot of strikes in the last uh, six months or so from big companies like Kellogg's had one, John Deere. Actually, the John Deere one was hilarious because they had all the white collar workers go work in the factory to like make up for the strike. And immediately they put like a tractor through a wall. (laughs) Nobody injured, thankfully. That sounds about right. The jobs aren't interchangeable, I find. But yeah, we're waiting to see if they'll be allowed to strike because the court could rule that this is economically necessary and therefore you don't have the right to strike. Oh, interesting. Yeah, there are certain industries that are protected from striking, the medical industry being the biggest one off the top of my head, because if they were to actually strike, basically the public at large would be damaged. Yeah. Likely more so than them getting wages. At least that's how we feel as a society. That's the rules we passed. Yeah. That kind of makes sense. Have they not striked before, like nurses or something? There have been large strikes in most all industries in the past. Actually, that legislation would have gone through for nurses to not be able to strike due to a nurse strike. Maybe it was just like... I can't think of a big one off the top of my head for nurses, but there was a fairly large and violent strike in the railway industry in 1877. And I actually think next week I'm going to cover violent union strikes. Okay. Or at least violent strikes, because there is a long history of workers fighting for their rights and just getting murdered. Wow. And I think it's not known well enough. Those employers. Oh, we got a a chat from uh, GZDR4. EV. Uh, police and EMT services are not allowed to strike either in New York. The workaround is a mass sick call-out day to show their strength. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Ah. There are quite a few industries that that applies to. I don't know them all off the top of my head, though. But yeah, that's something to keep an eye on because basically when courts get involved with union things like this, it's always going to be a little interesting because they can chip away at rights of unions as well, very slowly. Who, the government? Yeah, the government saying when you can and can't strike. Yeah, I guess. And there's been an erosion for union rights, especially with the right to strike ever since Reagan. One of the first things he did in office was fire every air traffic controller that was on strike at the time he entered office, basically saying it's illegal for you to strike. If you don't show up within 48 hours to work, you're fired. Bunch didn't. He fired them all. 
And what happened to all the air traffic controllers? Nobody had any? There was a long time where they just basically borrowed from the military. And yeah, it was a shit show. <laughs> but that's what happened. So that's what's happening with regards to union employment. This I found so bizarre. This is a case out of Wisconsin. Thetacare, a medical company in Wisconsin, requested Thursday that a Outagami County judge temporarily block seven of its employees who had applied for and accepted jobs at Ascension from beginning work there on Monday until the health system could find replacements for them. The employees were part of an 11-member interventional radiology and cardiovascular team, which can perform procedures to stop bleeding in targeted areas during a traumatic injury or restore blood flow to the brain in the case of a stroke. Each of them were employed at will, meaning they were under no obligation to stay at Thetacare for a certain amount of time. Outagami's County Circuit Court Judge Mark McGinnis Finally, a different judge here, Chelsea, granted Thetacare's request and held an initial hearing Friday morning. The case will get a longer hearing at 10 a.m. on Monday. That would have been today. I haven't heard an update, though. Okay. McGinnis told lawyers for both health systems they should try to work out a temporary agreement by the end of the day Friday about the employee status until Monday's hearing. Otherwise, he said the order prohibiting them from going to work at Ascension would be final until a further ruling was made. That means the seven healthcare workers would not be working at either hospital on Monday. To me, that is a poor result for everyone involved, said McGinnis. In the complaint, the lawyers for Thetacare wrote that Ascension had shockingly chosen to poach the employees during a stressful time for healthcare. More COVID-19 patients are hospitalized in the Fox Valley now than at any other time during the pandemic, according to the Wisconsin Hospital Association data, and Thetacare has cancelled non-emergency surgeries to make space. A Thursday statement from Ascension said that employees were not recruited, but instead decided to apply for an open job posting. It was Ascension's understanding that Thetacare had the opportunity to make a counteroffer, but declined the statement said. The attorney for Thetacare Friday argued that losing the majority of these employees poses a health threat to the region because the health system's Nina Hospital is a hub for high-level stroke care and care for patients with traumatic injuries. Thetacare Nina is a level 2 trauma center, part of which means they have specialists like interventional radiologists available regularly to treat patients. Ascension St. Elizabeth Hospital, a level 3 trauma center, can provide initial support to trauma patients and is able to transfer them to Thetacare Nina for more care according to the definitions from the Wisconsin Department of Health Services. Thetacare Nina's facility is also a comprehensive stroke center, which also means having specialists available regularly. And Ascension St. Elizabeth is a primary stroke center, a designation which does not stipulate having those staff available under the clock. In the time it takes to divert a local patient in need of emergency care for a stroke or trauma to another similarly certified hospital, Bozak said the patient could die. Attorney David Muth, who represents Ascension Friday, said the hospital was capable of caring for such patients in the event that it was necessary even though they were not designated at the same level as Thetacare. Muth argued that Thetacare had weeks to come up with better offers to keep their employees or figure out alternate staffing solutions and instead chose to initiate court actions days before the workers were set to start a dissension, resulting in a mess of Thetacare's own making. In the complaint, Thetacare's attorneys wrote that the organization found out December 21st that four of these employees had accepted offers with Ascension and learned December 29th that two nurses planned to make the same move on January 7th, and they learned one additional nurse planned to quit and work there as well. Ascension had offered the employees better benefits packages than Thetacare could match. Sorry, that Thetacare did not match, not could not match. And one of the colleagues 
received an offer from Ascension that was attractive, not just in pay, but also in better work-life balance, which caused others on his team to apply. After approaching Thetacare with the chance to match the offer they'd been given, Bricer wrote that they were told the long-term expense to Thetacare was not worth the short-term cost and no counteroffer would be made. So basically what happened here, these guys hated their job, saw a better job online, or at least one that paid better, went yeah. to their employer and said, hey, we're going to leave unless you pay us this. And the employer said, no, nah, we're not going to do that. And right before they left, they went to the court, who now is saying they can't leave their job because it's an emergency job that needs to be filled. Oh, they can't do that, can they? Apparently they can for the time being. Hmm. Is it because of the COVID? It's just they work at the only certain level of stroke uh, hospital okay. in, in the area. And if they left, there would be nobody working this stroke facility. So That's, they can't leave. That sucks. This is like a free country. You can do what you want. They're you would think. forced yeah. legally to stay. And the employer had the opportunity to, to keep them if they would pay them more. Yeah. But they said, nah. Oh my god, that's crazy. Yeah. Wow. I'm speechless on that one. I have never seen that. I don't know if there's a precedent for it in employment law, but I found that ridiculous. What do you think they're going to do? I have no idea. I'm very curious to see what the court case ends up being. They were supposed to meet today, so hopefully we get some sort of media out on this soon, and we can have a quick update. I'd be interested to know. Yeah. But enough about that. We got lots to talk about. Cue music. From the unexplained to the mundane, come join us on a journey to the fringe. Hello and welcome to Journey to the Fringe, the only podcast out there that is willing to say... Okay, I guess we're not willing <gasps> to say. You can't say that. That's how you learn, by trying things out. See, just like that. Oh my god. We are your hosts here, Taylor and Chelsea, the causeway to the curios, the entry to the edge of reality, and of course, we are your gurus of good words. Today, we are going to be using those good words to shed some light on a topic that probably more people should know about. Those good words are mostly interesting. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we know many good words, like interesting and mispronunciation. Yes. I've mostly... Foreign languages. Sometimes foreign words. languages. We're pretty good at English. Mostly. Today, that topic we're going to be going over is a little bit of a heavier theme. That is, of course, genocides. There's going to be a lot of descriptions of torture and death. So if that does bother you, please, viewer discretion is advised. Go listen to an older episode again. Relive the happy times, and we'll see you again next week when we talk again probably about murder and violence. But less, I guess? So it's just the way we are. With that in mind, let's get on with the topic. So most people have an idea when you say genocide, what we are talking about. It is a mass extermination of people. But when that term is used, usually it brings to mind certain images. Generally, you're going to associate it with World War II, or you may also associate it with colonial days and the settlement from Europe to other continents and lands. Today, we are going to be talking about lesser known genocides, different areas that meet this definition that I think deserve to be known as well. 
are going to cover these as best as we can in a lighthearted manner as we do. That does not lessen how horrible these things are. And hopefully it just helps gather the information and soak it into your brain so it stays a little longer and we can all remember these horrible events. Maybe it doesn't need to soak. Maybe you just need to know about it. Yeah, maybe that's good. I don't know if I want to soak in it either. Okay, soak in the blood. Okay. But I do want to know about it. Yeah, you do want to know about it. Anyhow, just in case anybody's curious, we're going to today talk about what the definition of genocide is. That is going to be the next maybe 10 to 30 seconds after I'm done this paragraph. After that, we are going to talk about three historical events, which you probably didn't know about before today, that meet the definition of a genocide. And after that, we are just going to part ways and be a little changed as you do. So without further ado, what is a genocide? Well, the United Nations Genocide Convention defined what a genocide is. If anybody was going to do it, I'm glad they did it. Genocide is an act committed with intent to destroy, in whole or in part, a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group. Ethnical. I'm still torn by that word ethnical. Denoting or deriving from or distinctive of the ways of living built up by a group of people. I'm not sure I comprehended any of that. I'm not okay. really sure. It doesn't sound right. It sounds like a culture, so an ethnicity. Yeah, eth like ethnic. Yeah. Yeah, okay. But with it. They just wanted to sound smarter. I've done that Ethnical with words sounds before, wrong, too. but okay. Yeah. Anyhow, that's the working definition that the world has as of right now. I am going to be liberal with this interpretation of it, and I am going to expand it to include political groups, because I do feel that there is a genocide that people need to know about that we're going to talk about at the end here. So without further ado, I am going to move on to our first topic, and that is a a genocide that happened during the Qing Dynasty from 1755 to 1757. That's when the genocide took place. The Qing Dynasty went on for much longer than that. Qing Dynasty is in China, at least what is now today China. It also encompassed many other areas. China, as we know it today's borders have changed greatly in the last two millennia. The group we're going to be looking at today is called the Dzungars. They are part of Mongolia. Uh, Mongolia, as you may know, has seen some ups and downs in the world having spanned the entire Asia continent all the way over to Ukraine or Germany on the Western Front in the 1300s. The empire is greatly reduced by this point in the 1700s, but it is still larger than what you would see as Mongolia today. And if you remember, we did talk about this. I can't remember which episode. Might have been the paranormal airports. We talked about the northernmost province in China is actually called Inner Mongolia. It was probably the Mongolian deathworm. I'm just joking. I'm pretty sure it was a about the airports because <laughs> there was an airport in inner mongolia yeah it was i just wanted to say mongolian deathworm because there's two episodes people could listen to with mongolia yeah three now so mongolia took up a much larger space than it does today in the 1700s it uh spanned westward of china basically taking up the areas that is Xinjiang today, which is the province where uh, most notably there is a crackdown on the Uyghur population that some people do classify itself as a genocide of sorts, but it would basically spread west from there all the way to Kazakhstan and be as far north as Siberia in Russia and Kyrgyzstan. Now, Mongolia predominantly was made up of two different ethnic groups within it. That would be the Khalkha, which are on the eastern portion of Mongolia. That would be what you would consider Mongolia today, as well as a large portion of Inner Mongolia. There were also the Oirits, 
O-I-R-A-T-S. I probably am not pronouncing it right, but that is how it looks. The Oirats would inhabit what would be today Xinjiang, and it would span all the way over to Kazakhstan, as we just talked about. And this is all Mongolians. They're an affiliation of tribes. Every now and then, they have a leader that's powerful enough to unite them all, and they raise absolute hell, mostly on China, given a great enough ruler, or Khan, as they are called within the Mongolian ruling. Ah. a menacing ability throughout the world but they have to be born with a blood clot in their hand that's just basically how it works what? that was the prophecy for genghis khan he was Having born a blood clot in his yeah he hand? was born grasping a blood clot and the shaman who helped birth him said that meant he was meant to rule the world Blech. gross yeah. also can i just say a fun fact i did not know that genghis khan meant Ruler? King? Emperor? Yeah, so the first part is the name... I thought that was his full no, name. No, the actual Genghis is the name he was given upon reaching the throne of Khan, and Khan is the word king. So it's kind of like a pope, actually. How Pope Benedict or Pope, pope Francis. Francis isn't his real name. There's a lot of that I found. That once you become a leader, your name changes. Because Genghis Khan's real name is Temujin. That's... Genghis Khan's name. I thought it would be like Dug Dug or something. Something powerful like that, I agree. Yeah. But Tamu. Okay, okay. <laughs> what happened in 1620 is an Oirat ethnic Khan was able to unite all the Oirats under his banner. He waged battle with the Qing dynasty and was a formidable opponent, actually. Not taking land, per se, from China, but, you know, the nomadic tribes going in with their arrows and horses, shooting and pillaging and then running away faster than any response could get there. This worked for a while. The Qings didn't really know what to do, but in 1745... The Khan that was leading the group, and this would be a different one, obviously, than the one that started it in 1620. The Khan died. There was then a struggle to see who should actually be the next great Khan of the Dzungar nation. When this happened, there was a struggle between all four tribes that wanted power. The Qing sent in 50,000 troops and basically faced no resistance and were able to basically set up what they wanted to do. The Qings originally did not want to destroy the Oirats, but no longer wanted them to be a threat. They opted to divide the Dzungar Khanate, which is the king, among the four Oirat tribes, each with their own Khan. So basically what they said is, look, you guys are really annoying when you join up. We're going to spare you, but you got to just stay as your individual tribes. This pissed off one of the tribe leaders greatly by the name of Amrsana. He was a disgruntled noble who had previously allied with the Qings to destroy the Dzungar state and was merely made a Khan of the Khoid Mongols, even though he wanted to be the ruler of all the Oirat tribes. So in 1755, he began a failed revolt against the Qings, which was crushed within the two years. Clearly did not work out for this guy or his people. Like, this guy pulled a real dick move, in my personal opinion. Probably just pride at that point. Once his rebellion failed, Amersana fled to Russia, where he died in Tobolsk in September 21st, 1757. So he got away, survived for a bit longer, not that much longer. And you hope that... The Chings would say, well, it's just one bad guy. Let's let's just leave it at that. No, this enraged the Qing emperor 
who then issued orders for the eradication of the entire Dzungar nation and name. The Mongol banners and Manchus were to receive Dzungar women and children as slaves, and the remaining Dzungars were to be killed. And when we say banners, banners were kind of the elite portion of the army uh, based on their regionality. The Mongol banner would, of course, be the Khalkhan of the eastern Mongol tribes because they did side with the Qings. There are many ethnic groups within China. The Qing dynasty was, in fact, actually the Manchu ethnic group within China. And the majority population now is Han. So it does fluctuate as to who's actually in charge. So they took this tribe and gave the, is it women and children? Slaves? This is the more general way of saying it, but they basically said, you know what? We're going to get rid of any single person who may pose a threat and sell off anybody who's too weak or might serve some use and is not able to fight. Mm. And they gave them to the Mongols? Basically, soldiers who went in there got to go home with a slave. Oh, okay. Yeah. This is a direct quote. I shouldn't say direct quote. This is a translation of a direct quote because the Qings didn't speak great English. So we have to assume this is a good translation. So the Qing Emperor said, Show no mercy at all to these rebels. Only the old and weak should be saved. Our previous military campaigns were too lenient. If we act as before, our troops will withdraw and further trouble will occur. If a rebel is captured and his followers wish to surrender, he must personally come to the garrison, prostrate himself before the commander, and request surrender. If he only sends someone to request submission, it is undoubtedly a trick. Tell Tsengunjav to massacre these crafty Dzungars. Do not believe what they say. The emperor also ordered that the young and strong be massacred and that young men who surrendered should be executed because their ancestors were chieftains. These orders spared children, women, and the elderly from death, but enslaved them as bondservants with their Dzungar identity to be forgotten and erased forever. The devastating effects on the land and the population were noted by a Qing official of the day. Of the several hundred thousand households that warred in the Dzungar nation. 40% died of smallpox, 20% fled to Russia or the Kazakhs, and 30% were killed by the great army. The remaining women and children were given as servants to others. For several thousand miles, there was not a single Dzungarian tent. That's a lot. Yeah. Estimates vary as to the actual numbers. I don't think you're going to find a genocide that anybody kept perfect records of. Yeah. The Holocaust obviously being the closest one. Generally, the army doing the genocide doesn't really care enough to keep records. Or they don't yeah. want them remembered. Yeah. But estimates are that of the Dzungar population, about 500 to 800,000 died due to either starvation, disease, or by the orders of the Qing Emperor to wipe them out. That is anywhere from 70 to 80% of the population of Dzungar people alive at the time. And as a consequence of the genocide, there was a resettlement of the region by Hans, Manchus, Weigers, and Kazakhs. So I do find it interesting that this area where this genocide occurred is now experiencing another genocide, or at least what may be defined as a genocide, with the Weigers. And these were people that they resettled the land with. So it just seems like land that historically has a cyclical event on it. Yeah, that is interesting. Is this still a like, type of people? There are still Mongols living in um, Xinjiang. They make up about 1% of the population of Xinjiang, which is not a densely populated province in China, as well as some of the population did flee, 
to Kazakhstan or to Russia. So there still are ethnic ancestors to the Dzungars living in those regions. Okay. Interesting too, that the Dzungars were Mongolian and by extension, they were Buddhist. When they were pushed out of this region, they were replaced with predominantly Muslim individuals. So it became a Muslim state more or less, which the Weigers were Muslims. And to just kind of counterbalance how their relationships were, the Khalka, who were on the good side of the Qing Empire, they conceded their independence to the Qing dynasty and managed to survive the several centuries of colonization and finally were able to establish their own nation we now know today as Mongolia later on. But that is the Qing dynasty genocide of the Dzungar people. Any questions, Charles? I don't think so. I think I've asked my questions. Okay. All the major questions. I find a lot, like when you're looking at genocides like these, all comes down to like one person or one very small group within doing a bad and then just the ruling class basically saying that's the last straw we're done. Yeah, I think in a lot of them. Yes, I get what you're saying because I see that in some of the examples I've done. There's also a lot of like scapegoating yeah. from um, power to whatever the particular group it is that they're genociding to get everybody on their side to get behind it. Yeah, and especially that one person or small group that is misbehaving, they may be misbehaving on the behalf of the larger group who wants them to. Not even generally misbehaving. <laughs> but that is the Zungar genocide. Chelsea, you're free to move on to your topic. Yeah, thank you. So I'm doing the Haiti massacre, which I was happy to do because I unfortunately had not heard about this before. And I think all of these are important to talk about. So here's the 411 on the Haiti massacre. This happens in 1804 and was carried out against the French population and the French Creoles who remained in Haiti following the Haitian Revolution. This was carried out by soldiers who were mostly former slaves under orders from Jean-Jacques Desalines. He states that, quote, all suspected of conspiring in the acts of the expelled army should be put to death, end quote from Jean-Jacques. It is speculated that the actions which follow can attempted to be explained by the cruel treatment of black slaves by white slaveholders in Saint Domingue, aka Haiti. So to summarize just this in what I just said, I have a quotation here from Hendy Christoph's personal secretary and I am really sorry. I searched up and down to see if I could find the name of Henry Kristoff's personal secretary. I don't necessarily like saying Henry Kristoff's personal secretary. I wish I had a name, but I could not find it. And I really liked the quote, but I think that just sums up the quote right here. So I'm just going to continue with it. Have they not hung up men with heads downward, drowned them in sacks, crucified them on planks, buried them alive, Crushed them in mortars? Have they not forced them to consume feces? And having flayed them with the lash, have they not cast them alive to be devoured by worms? Or onto anthills? Or lashed them to stakes in the swamp to be devoured by mosquitoes? Have they not thrown them into boiling cauldrons of cane syrup? Have they not put men and women inside barrels studded with spikes and rolled them down mountainsides into the abyss? Have they not consigned these miserable blacks to man-eating dogs until the latter, sated by human flesh, left the mangled victims to be finished off with bayonet and poignard? That's a pretty heavy quote. Yeah. Are you sure he didn't end it with they have not? No. Damn. That's for certain. Okay. That was end quote there. No, they have not. 
unfortunately. That just kind of sets the scenes for what's happening here. The French Revolution provided an opportunity with a divided ruling class. Enslaved men and women coordinated an uprising that led to military victories and eventual freedom. So from early January 1804 until April 22nd, 1804, which is a period of four months, counted it for you. Squads of soldiers moved from house to house throughout Haiti, torturing and killing entire French families, which was the massacre itself. Eyewitness accounts of the massacre describe imprisonment and killings even of whites who had been friendly and sympathetic to the black population. Between three to 5,000 were killed. This was a massacre in which an oppressed group used genocidal means to destroy their oppressors. I just gave you a glimpse at kind of what happened. The important bit. So I'm going to go back a little bit so we can get to why the massacre happened, which started with the Haitian Revolution, and then I'll go through the massacre and genocide itself a little bit. Haiti had an enslaved population of nearly 500,000 people and a long history of small rebellions against white plantation holders and that is a lot of people for a small island and not just a lot of people for a small island a lot of slaves for a small island. With the French Revolution happening in 1791, a Jamaican man named Duddy in Haiti became the leader of the enslaved Africans by leading a, a voodoo ceremony where he demanded that all blacks cast aside the image of the god of the oppressors. This was held on a large plantation in Cap Francis. He was the early leader of the Haitian Revolution. Uniting the freedom fighters under African spirituality enabled the slaves to break away psychologically from the very real and concrete chains of the Calvary and to see themselves as independent beings, a sense of human dignity enabling them to survive. He planned to massacre all of the French living in Cap Francis, so on the 22nd of August, 1791, said it right this time, not 1971, if I ever say 1971, I don't mean it. I switched the two numbers and it's 1791. The enslaved Africans descended on Le Cap where they destroyed the plantations and executed all the French who lived in the region. Towards the end of 1791, it's pretty much official. It's an all-out civil war happening and Toussaint Le, Le Overture, that was my best French accent by the way, <laughs> known as Black Napoleon, emerges as the leader of the freedom fighters and takes control of a significant portion of the island and violent bloodbaths between the freedom fighters and the French and British armies resulted in over 100,000 deaths. This battle ensues for some 10 years, and eventually they take over the whole island. Despite the French proclamation of emancipation, which was a decree of the National Convention which abolished slavery in all French colonies, the blacks sided with the Spanish who came to occupy the region. In 1794, Spanish forces stood by while the black troops of Jean-Francois Papillon, principal leader of the French Revolution, massacred the French whites in Fort Dauphine, aka Fort Liberté. Jean-Jacques Dessalines, you may, he may sound familiar from my little blurb about 
what was happening with the Haitian massacre. He joins the slave rebellion, becoming a lieutenant of the army made up mostly of former slaves under Papillon. During this time, genocide was just seen as a great strategy by everyone on both sides of the conflict. Uh, freedom fighters, French, and so on. France was not going to just hand the island over. It was very lucrative for them and white forces were sent by Napoleon Bonaparte in 1802, which was massive. He sent nearly 500,000 troops. 50,000, isn't it? 50,000. What did I say? 500,000. Oh, I was just thinking 500,000 with the slaves that were yeah. there. It's 50,000. Thank you for catching that. <laughs> 50,000 troops. They committed massacres fighting to reinstate slave rule, but were defeated in 1803 by Toussaint's generals as he had died in prison before they could get to genocide. With this victory, they changed the name from Saint Domingue to Haiti and declared its independence from France. I'm on their side at this point, like good for them. Yeah. So spoiler alert, Jean-Jacques goes on to become the first ruler of an independent Haiti under the 1805 constitution. He's later named Emperor of Haiti, Jacques I, by generals of the Haitian Revolution Army and rules until he was assassinated in 1806. He is regarded as one of the founding fathers of Haiti. So I'm all for it at this part. I was like, go Haiti, you take back your freedom. This has nothing to do with the genocide yet. I mentioned a lot of death, but it got me too. It tricked me too. I was like, where's the genocide? I am curious. I don't know if you looked into his assassination at all, but do you know if it was done by like a Frenchman or if it was done by somebody in a struggle for power within Haiti? I actually don't know. Okay. That's fine. That's not what I the episode is about. generally just steer my course and I don't yeah. really stray, especially on something this big. Yeah. Sometimes I do. I have that problem. I, I stray too much. Now that we've set this up properly, aside from how he was, what's the word for it? Assassinated. We can get to the massacre slash genocide. So to preface this, here are five main factors author Philippe Girard attributes to the lead up of the massacre and genocide. Number one, Haitian soldiers were influenced by the French Revolution to justify murder and large scale massacres on ideological grounds. I mean, I don't know if I would put it that way. We we're probably just. You did, didn't you? Yeah, no. Didn't you? Philippe Girard did. I'm gonna read this again. Haitian soldiers were influenced by the French Revolution to justify murder and large-scale massacres on ideological grounds. I mean, I don't know if I would say it that way. I would say that slaves were influenced by wanting their freedom. Well, they could be, but the entire story of the French Revolution was, was that it was a spoiled and disconnected upper class that got killed. Like they brought out the guillotine yeah. and got rid of most, if not all of them. So it, it is fair to describe that as French Revolution like. Yeah, and was. in fact, it was okay. a revolution. They just, just didn't have the money yes, for true. a guillotine. They probably did not. I guess I just really took that in right there. Okay, number two. Economic interests motivated French planters to want to quell the uprising, as well as influencing former slaves to want to kill the planters and take ownership of the plantations. Number three, slave revolt has been going on for more than a decade and was itself a reaction to a century of brutal colonial rule, making violent death commonplace and therefore easier to accept. Okay, I agree with that. Number four, the massacre was a form of class warfare. Warfare. 
I said that really weird. So much for the we do English, okay? We do it. Hey, good. I said good. We do it fine. <laughs> Which Status in itself quo. is improper English. Number four. The massacre was a form of class warfare in which former slaves were able to take revenge against their former masters. And number five, the last stages of the war became a racial conflict pitting whites against blacks and mulattoes. Those of mixed African and Europe ancestry in which racial hatred, dehumanization, and conspiracy theories all facilitated genocide. So those are Lippe Gerard's opinions, essentially. I felt like we needed a list. Okay. Which apparently Philippe is entitled to. So this brings me on to what happened after Jean-Jacques came into power after their victory. So after the victory, Jean-Jacques ordered the execution of 800 French soldiers who had been left behind. However, he did guarantee the safety of the remaining white civilian population with a major asterisk. Major. It's major. Is it that he would not? It is. Nobody read that fine yeah. print. He was quoted as stating, quote, there are still French on the island and still you consider yourselves free, end quote. So he really had a hostile attitude towards the remaining white minority. Rumors about the white population suggested that they would try to leave the country to convince foreign powers to invade and reintroduce slavery. Discussions between Dessalines and his advisors openly suggested that the white population should be put to death for the sake of national security. Whites trying to leave Haiti were prevented from doing so. On the 1st of January 1804, Dessalines proclaimed Haiti an independent nation. Dessalines later gave the order to all cities in Haiti that all whites should be put to death. Weapons used should be silent weapons such as knives and bayonets rather than gunfire so that the killing could be done quietly and avoid warning intended victims by the sound of gunfire giving them the opportunity to escape. John Jock traveled among the Haitian cities and despite the orders in pretty much every city, the massacres were not being carried out until he actually went there and oversaw it. In his tour, he talked about the atrocities committed by the former white authorities and demanded his orders about the mass killings of the white population be carried out. He ordered, especially people of mixed race, to commit the killings so the blame was not put solely on the black population. These killings take place on the streets and places outside of cities. Theft and rape also take place. Emphasis was mostly on white males and the killings of white women came at a later stage because everyone felt hesitant to kill females. However, they could not be spared to give birth to new Frenchmen. That would be a problem. And by the end of April 1804, Three to 5,000 people had been killed and white Haitians were practically eradicated from the island, excluding a select group of whites given amnesty. Some Polish, Germans, women who agreed to marry non-white men and doctors. In an official proclamation on the 8th of April 1804, Dessalines stated, We have given these true cannibals war for war, crime for crime, outrage for outrage. Yes, I have saved my country. I have avenged America. End quote. He referred to the massacre as an act of national authority. Dessalines regarded the elimination of the white Haitians an act of political necessity, as they were regarded as a threat to the peace between the black and the free people of color. It was also regarded as a necessary act of vengeance. Dessalines' secretary, Osrond Tonnerre, stated, For a declaration of independence, we should have the skin of white man for parchment, a skull for an inkwell, his blood for ink, and a bayonet for a pen. 
1805 Constitution, all citizens were defined as black. The Constitution also banned white men from owning land except for people already born or born in the future to white women who were naturalized as Haitian citizens and the Germans and Poles who got Haitian citizenship. Just to note, Haiti became the first country ever founded entirely by formerly enslaved black people, the second country to defeat Europeans for freedom, and the first country to abolish slavery in the Western Hemisphere. Yeah, I don't know how to feel on that one. Yeah, I mean, the entire slave trade was a great mm. atrocity in itself. I don't know if it justifies I don't genocide. know that it justifies either. And it's not until after they come to victory. But at the same time... I mean, I was totally on their side. It's not justified, but I kind of yeah. get it, which is kind of dangerous too. It is kind of dangerous, isn't it? I think it's important to talk about those feelings that were kind of like, eh, does it make it right? It's still genocide. No, genocide is not, I don't think, I can't come up with a scenario in my mind at least where genocide is correct, yeah. but yeah. No, this there, one this gives one me is, weird feelings, so it's... This one is in the dark gray area, not is. the black. Yeah. Anyhow. <laughs> From here, we are going to move actually into the 1900s, and we're going to talk about the South Asia Pacific. More specifically, the country of Indonesia, at least is what it will be called once it is formed, and its execution of political groups in the 1960s. If you want to learn more than what I'm about to talk about, there is an excellent book out there by a man named Vincent Bevins. It came out, I believe, in either 2020 or 2021. It is called The Jakarta Method, and it outlines this in much greater detail than what I'm about to go over. But without further ado, let's get our mindset uh, back into World War II. Now, we focused a lot on this podcast on the European front of it. But while the European theater was going on, the Japanese had the Pacific theater basically all to themselves. And what they did was empire build in that time. Prior to World War II, 1800s, 1900s, Europe went on a bit of a colonization spree. Not just the lands to the West and North America, but to basically any country or territory that they deemed below them in nature, which was basically anybody who's not European. There was a frenzy grab as to whatever you could get. And the Dutch was able to claim 13,000 islands in the South Pacific for their colonies, which is in the area now known as Indonesia. During World War II, Japan occupied this territory. While Japan was there, Indonesians gained a sense of identity, a belief in nationalism, and they started to strive for independence from the Dutch. I am trying to condense so much super confusing geopolitics. Mm -hmm into like two to five minutes to set up a genocide. So it's kind of hard. Yeah, it is very difficult. Basically, once Japan surrenders in World War II, they recede back to their country from Indonesia from there. And Japan actually did help Indonesia set up its first government in 1945 when they declared independence. When they claimed independence, they did it under the presidency of Sukarno, and they had no army because Japan disallowed any countries they were occupying to have an army. So once Japan left, they needed to immediately form an army. Their plan to get an army to come together fast is to develop it around a charismatic figure because it would be easier to build than a well-trained militia. From 1945 to about 1949, there are skirmishes between first a 
British soldiers who the Dutch asked to go reclaim their territories on their behalf. And then Dutch soldiers eventually when they're able to recuperate from their losses during World War II. By the time 1949 rolls around, they truly gain their independence. There's a big turmoil in the middle, which I am skipping over because this is not part of it. But Sukarno comes out as the president of Indonesia. Along with him, he has his powers of influence that were, have made him capable of ruling this country. And those are the military, which is led by Suharto, who is on his side, the religious sect. Indonesia is a very large Muslim country. And actually an interesting fact, if you ever want to bring it up, Indonesia is the largest Muslim country in the world, both by population because it is a large country. I believe it's about 150 million people and by number of Muslims living within it. And the third group that helped bring Sukarno into power was the communists, the socialists, the PKI as they were called there. And the PKI formed a big part of everyday politics, ensuring the peasants and the lower classes had their say, that Indonesia had strong unions, and of course that everything was held in check. They were a big push as to why the revolution came and Indonesia gained its independence, but that is a story for a different day. What we're going to do is jump a little bit forward. Oh, sorry, I did want to cover one more thing. Sukarno was a very revolutionary president, and he kind of spoke on behalf of what he defined as the third world. Back in the day, the third world actually had a very different meaning than how we use it today. Today, we use it as poorer and developing countries. Yeah. How it was used in the 60s was basically the US was considered the first world on its side of the Cold War. The Soviet Union and its allies were considered the second world on the other side of the battle. And in between them were all the developing nations they defined as the third world. Not that they were lesser, but in that they had no actual side in the fight. They were unaffiliated and they wanted to prosper. We have a very different definition of that this, these days. We sure do. Yeah. And the third world also meant that generally they were colonized and they were becoming decolonized. They wanted their actual piece in the game. They had been looted and pillaged for long enough. They wanted to see the, the prosperity that was promised to them by the capitalist systems that were put in place. Sukarno in Indonesia was one that actually brought these countries together to talk about these ideas. Generally, how they would frame it, it was that stemmed from the American Revolution in 1776. When they had meetings, they would definitely bring up the founding fathers of the U.S., both Ho Chi Minh and Sukarno were known to do this. They also brought up Paul Revere, who was influential during the American Revolution. They really wanted to frame it as this was just their American Revolution. Why were you allowed to do it and we weren't? To kind of gain favor of the public. In the 1960s, in Badung, Indonesia, Sukarno held a conference for all these countries as the Afro-Asian Summit to discuss trading relationships and to develop themselves as internal powers. This did not sit well with the CIA. The CIA was not very happy with this. They were newly formed. They had faced nothing but political failures for quite some time. Having attempted, I'm not quite sure if it's happened yet or not, but the Bay of Pigs in Cuba, they attempted many times to invade the Soviet Union by sending some of their operatives that spoke Russian in as paratroopers into Russia, basically just to take down the country from within, and it just failed miserably. Like, 
as soon as they got to town, these people be like, yeah, I have no idea who that guy is. And he speaks weird Russian. I think he might they be were a spy. Really something. Yeah. To bring it back to Indonesia, a real issue popped up in 1965 on September 30th by what is known as the September 30th movement. There were worries that the military was going to take a struggle for power or a coup d'etat against Sukarno. This group, the 30th of September movement or September 30th movement, kidnapped six generals from the military and tortured and murdered them. And who were these people? To this day, it is actually still almost impossible to track down who these people were or who they were affiliated with. There are people who speculate, but there's basically two trains of thoughts. It was either the PKI, the Communist Party, or it was people from within the military that wanted to be able to frame the PKI. Okay. Those are both good speculations, I think. That was kind of my train of thought actually mine was pki okay and not to waste a good event like this suharto the general who also happened to be trained by american forces in the u.s the cia and military put a concerted effort out to gain the loyalty of the indonesian military early on they brought them over to the u.s and kansas to train them they took them out drinking showed them the luxuries of capitalism and why it was the proper way a society should be built suharto saw the september 30th movement and he immediately blamed the PKI and started spreading huge rumors, slanderous rumors out about this group and how badly they tortured these generals. There were rumors going around that the feminist portion of the PKI, the feminist group within it, had tortured these generals and cut off their genitals and then sacrificed them to the devil. Wow. Yeah. There is no substantiation to that. It doesn't stop people from starting to believe them. Immediately, Saharto arrests and assassinates all the high-level PKI members that are easily gotten. He does kill soldiers within the military who he believes are sympathizers to the PKI. Basically, anybody who had any affiliation or rumors of affiliation to the PKI are asked to come into police stations for questioning. Over the course of the next two to ten years, really, it's really hard to pin down because there's no documentation at all. Anywhere from about 100,000 to 2 million people are murdered their bodies are buried on basically three main islands the islands of java where jakarta is located the island of sumatra and the island of bali although the general outline of events is known much is unknown about the killings and an accurate and verified count of the dead is unlikely to ever be known there were few western journalists or academics in indonesia at the time and the military was one of the few sources of information travel was difficult and dangerous and the regime that approved and oversaw the killings remained in power for three decades. The Indonesian media at the time had been undermined by restrictions under guided democracy and by New Order's takeover in 1966. With the killings occurring at the height of the Western fears over communism during the Cold War, there was little investigation internationally, which would have risked complicating the West's preferences for Suharto and the New Order over the PKI and the Old Order. Now, I, from how I'm describing this, it should come as no surprise that Suharto takes this turmoil and turns it into a dictatorship. He takes over as president of Indonesia and reigns from 1968 to 1998. What is that? 50, 30, 30 years. 30 years. Yeah. I just said 50. My math ain't great. <laughs> That's okay. 
In the first 20 years following the killings, 39 serious estimates of the death tolls were attempted. Before the killings had finished, the Indonesian army estimated that somewhere around 78,500 had been killed, while the PKI put the figure at about 2 million. The Indonesian army later estimated the number probably closer to 1 million, and most scholars now agree that at least half a million people were killed, thus more than in any other event in Indonesian history. Yeah, that's a crazy big number. Vincent Bevins, who wrote The Jakarta Method, estimates the numbers killed at up to a million, maybe more. Arrests and imprisonments continued for 10 years after the purge. A 1977 Amnesty International report suggested about 1 million PKI cadres and others identified or suspected of party involvement were detained. Between 1981 and 1990, the Indonesian government estimated that there had been between 1.6 and 1.8 million former prisoners at large in society. It is possible that in the mid-1970s, 100,000 were still imprisoned without trial. It is thought that as many as 1.5 million were imprisoned at one stage or another. Those PKI members not killed or imprisoned went into hiding while others tried to hide their past. Those arrested included leading politicians, artists, and writers, and peasants and soldiers. Those incarcerated in the vast prisons and networks of concentration camps, which rivaled those of the Nazis during World War II, faced extraordinarily inhumane conditions. Many did not survive their, this first period of detention, dying from mal malnutrition or beatings. As people revealed the names of underground communists, often under torture, the numbers imprisoned rose from 1966 to 1968. Methods of torture included severe beatings with makeshift materials like electric cables and large pieces of wood, breaking fingers and crushing toes and feet under the legs of chairs and tables, pulling out fingernails, electric shock, and burning with molten rubber or cigarettes. Detainees were sometimes forced to watch or listen to the torture of others, including relatives such as spouses or children. Both men and women were subject to sexual violence while in detention, including rape and electric shocks to the genitals. Women in particular were subject to brutal gendered violence, including being forced to ingest the urine of their captors and having genitals and breasts mutilated. Myriad instances of torture and rape with victims, including girls younger than 13, were reported to Amnesty International. And those released were often placed under house arrest and had to report to the military regularly or be banned from government employment, as were their children. It was not only just a genocide, it was a... They built camps to keep these people at that were called concentration camps. So in total, it, it's really hard to put a full number on it. It is anywhere from uh, 1 to 1 1.5 million people murdered or imprisoned at the smallest to 2.5 to probably 3.5 million people that were impacted by this. How overall. many years did this happen? So the killings, the main killings happened from 1965 to about 1968, with the camps really ongoing till the mid-1970s, probably closer into the 80s, with people at least wow. under house arrest. That's crazy. While all this is going on, the U.S. and the CIA are implicated heavily in all of the genociding. While the exact role of the U.S. government during the massacres remains obscured by still-sealed government archives on Indonesia for this period, it is known that at a minimum, 
the US government supplied money and communication equipment to the Indonesian army that facilitated the mass killings. They gave 50 million rupiah to the Cap Gestapo death squads and provided targeted names of thousands of alleged PKI leaders to the Indonesian army. Robert J. Martins, political officer at the US embassy in Jakarta from 1963 to 1966, told journalist Kathy Kadane in 1990 that he led a group of State Department and CIA officials who drew up the list of roughly 5,000 Communist Party operatives, which he provided to army intermediaries. Kadane asserts that approval for the release of the names came from top U.S. embassy officials, including U.S. Ambassador to Indonesia Marshall Green, Deputy Chief of Mission Jack Lidman, and Political Section Chief Edward Masters, who all later denied involvement. Martins claimed he acted without approval to avoid red tape at a critical time, and the State Department volume of foreign relations of the United States from 1964 to 1968, which the CIA attempted to suppress in 2001, acknowledges that the U.S. Embassy provided lists of communist leaders to Indonesians involved in the purges, and notes that Marshall Green stated in 1966 airgrams to Washington, which was drafted by Martins and approved by Masters, that the lists of communists were apparently being used by Indonesian security authorities who seemed to lack even the simplest overt information on the PKI leadership. Scholars have also corroborated the claim that U.S. Embassy officials provided lists of communists to Suharto's forces, who, according to Mark Ahrens, ensured that those so named were eliminated in the mass killing operations. Jeffrey B. Robinson asserts that the U.S. government officials, among them Marshall Green, published memoirs and articles that sought to divert attention from any possible U.S. role while questioning the integrity and political loyalties of scholars who disagreed with them. Vincent Bevins writes that this was not the first instance of U.S. officials providing lists of suspected communists to members of foreign governments to be rounded up and killed as they had done so in Guatemala in 1954 and Iraq in 1963. Besides the U.S. officials, managers of U.S.-owned corporate plantations also provided the Indonesian army with lists of troublesome communists and union leaders who were subsequently hunted down and killed. Robert Cribb, writing in 2002, claims, there is considerable evidence that the U.S. encouraged the killings by providing funds to anti-communist forces and supplying the Indonesian army with the names of people whom it believed were PKI members. There is no evidence, however, that the U.S. intervention significantly increased the scale of the killing. Vincent Bevan says that Indonesian military bears prime responsibility for the massacre in concentration camps, but Washington was the prime mover of the operation and shares the guilt for every death. It does go on a bit more like that, but basically had the U.S. not been involved, the military would not have been able to identify who actually needed to be killed. Has the U.S. ever said anything about it? They don't really acknowledge it all that uh, much. I don't, you wouldn't think they would. If you notice at the beginning of that portion, there are still sealed documents on this topic, which are classified and therefore we don't know the whole story on the U.S. I side. would imagine so. That's crazy. I mean, the U.S. always has their hand in things. Yeah, and like just reading the story that it was put by Bevins, if you were part of a union, you just had a union job, you were asked to come into the police station to give a statement or to be questioned, and you might have just been sent off to be murdered because you were a communist, because you were part of a union. Yeah, that's scary. Suharto, who is the general we were just talking about, who is responsible for these killings, or at least putting them in place, this was not even the only genocide he's responsible for. There is also the genocide genocide of Eastern Timor. In 1974, the neighboring colony of Portuguese Timor descended into civil war after the withdrawal of Portuguese authorities following the Carnation Revolution, whereby the left-wing populist Fertilin emerged triumphant, 
With approval from Western countries, including U.S. President Gerald Ford, Suharto decided to intervene, claiming to prevent the establishment of a communist state. After an unsuccessful attempt of covert support to Timorese groups, Suharto authorized a full-scale invasion of the colony on December 7, 1975, followed with its official annexation as Indonesia's 27th province of East Timor in July of 1976. The encirclement and annihilation campaigns of 1977 to 1979 broke the back of Fertilin control over the hinterlands, although continuing guerrilla resistance caused the government to maintain a strong military force in the half island until 1999. An estimated minimum of 90,800 and a maximum of 213,600 conflict-related deaths occurred in East Timor during Indonesian rule from 1974 to 1999, namely 17,600 to 19,600 killings and 73,200 to 194,000 excess deaths from hunger and illness, although Indonesian forces were responsible for about 70% of the violent killings. Indonesia's invasion and occupation of Eastern Timor during Suharto's presidency likely resulted in at least 100,000 deaths. Suharto ruled Indonesia from 1968 to 1998. He was finally petitioned out by students' protests in Indonesia. After 30 years. After 30 years. And the protests in 1998, basically he met with them and said, okay, fine, I'll retire in 2003. And it was actually his stakeholders who said, no, you're going to retire now. So he was forced out, but he just lived a peaceable life after that with no repercussions. That, that's crazy. I can't believe some of the things that people have gotten away with. Like, I can't even be imagined being myself responsible for one death, let alone billions. I think it gets a little easier after the first few thousand. Probably does. Like, still. Yeah. No, if it's one murder, you remember that name. If it's thousands, they're just statistics. Yeah, it's just like all the same, I guess. That's crazy. And that is the depths of humanity in a nutshell. There's more. There is definitely more. And this is now likely going to be an ongoing series that we will revisit when we won't we do it are... too often for you. But we yeah, will... we got to keep the show grounded if we're getting too happy. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's something that I think we use this platform as well to talk about things that you should know that you don't necessarily do. I mean, I didn't know any single one of these before either researching it or listening to it on the episode today. And it's not pleasant, but... Sometimes journeying to the fringe is just shining lights on those obtuse shadows that we try to pretend aren't there yeah it's not pleasant but it's an important thing in this world that we live in or else it just keeps happening and we're all humans and this is what we're capable of we are capable of great and yeah. awful and we've just talked about mostly awful. awful if you look at it yeah <laughs> it's true more awful than good but you know in that gray area overall i feel like i'm doing pretty good <laughs> i learned a lot about both the haitian revolution and uh genocide that followed from you chelsea i having seen just that there was a genocide in haiti assumed that it would have been of slaves that's what i thought too we were all surprised by it it took a turn and that's why you kind of were like i feel weird being like good for them and that's important to talk about too because it's still genocide yeah and with that, we have been Journey to the Fringe. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next week.
Thank you for listening to Journey to the Fringe. If you have liked what you have listened to, please like, share, subscribe, or follow, depending on what venue you are listening to us through. Also, please, if possible, leave a five-star review, as that really helps us in the algorithms. Should you wish to interact with us, please check us out on your social media of choice. I bet you we are there. And if you really want to communicate with us and give us ideas for new episodes or tell us that we're wrong and terrible, either way, please send us an email at journeytothefringe at gmail.com. For now, I'll see you in the next episode. Uh